we are <clears throat> visiting John chapter 7 once again today. So if you'll turn there with me, John chapter 7. A helpful title of today's sermon could be uh, Trustworthy Teaching. If you're taking notes, Trustworthy Teaching. We're looking at John 14, or 7, verses 14 through 24 this morning. One of my favorite things about going through the Gospel of John together is, is getting to study how and what our Lord taught as he walked this earth. Keep in mind, he, was, he had his earthly ministry for just a few short years. So he made every one of his words, every single moment that he stopped to teach, he made all of it count. You won't find any moments of teaching where you might say, you know, Jesus, that wasn't your best sermon. That might be true of me, but that's not true of our Lord. Every time Jesus opened his mouth to speak, it was incredibly impactful and important. And as we alluded to last week, it is his teaching that was the very source of the conflict between he and the religious leaders of the day. And it's also the very thing that drew some people to him. So on the one hand, it's repelling people. On the other hand, his teaching is drawing people. And we saw that in the Bread of Life discourse. We've talked about that many times now. The multitude was drawn to Jesus because of his miracle-working power, but only a select few stayed for his teaching. They came for the bread, and they stayed for his teaching. In chapter 5, one man was blessed by his miracle-working power, and then it was Jesus' teaching that then caused the Jews to want to put him to death. At the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 7, we see that Jesus was keeping from going about publicly in Judea. And why? Because the Jews wanted to kill him. And why did they want to kill him? Because of his teaching. His teaching is absolutely polarizing. His words are sharper than any two-edged sword. Some people hear him and they say, you blasphemer, you're doing the work of Satan. Who can endure this kind of teaching? And then there are others who hear him and say, as we just sang, you have the words of eternal life. His words are powerful. His insight is vast. His wisdom is profound, truly as will be said by the guards later on in this chapter, no one ever spoke like this man. We learn lessons directly from the content of what Jesus taught, and we can also learn lessons indirectly or by way of the implication of what Jesus taught. So that is to say that sometimes he's teaching us something directly and explicitly, and then there are other times where we can watch what he's saying, hear what he's saying, and, and look at the way he says it and the way that he operates. And then we can draw lessons from his life. We have one of those texts before us today where we will get to learn lessons directly from what Jesus is teaching this crowd was he's gathered as they're gathered during the Feast of Booths. And then we're also going to be taught some lessons indirectly. As Jesus stands up to teach, we will learn primarily of, of why his teaching is trustworthy. Understand, 
you're not accepting the words of Jesus on blind faith. At least you shouldn't be. You should consider, why should I trust this Jesus of Nazareth? That's the question that the Pharisees were asking themselves, and they couldn't come up with an answer. But it's the question that we should all ask ourselves, because there is good reason. There is plenty of good reason why you should trust the words of Jesus. It's an all-important lesson in our day, for sure, that we're going to learn here in our passage we're going to learn primarily of why his teaching is trustworthy, though many hate him for his teaching. But we're also going to learn through that lessons that we can then use to identify trustworthy teaching elsewhere. My friends, this is a very important lesson for us today in a day and age where discernment is called being a Pharisee. We're practicing discernment is called being a legalist. This is all important for us today. You, those who want to discern, and you say, hey, maybe, you know, we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't listen to this guy, or hey, maybe, maybe that's wrong. Oh, well, you just, you have religion. I have relationship. These things are not the same. You have that doctrine stuff, and I have love for the Lord. You ever heard people that talk that way? Well, we learn all throughout Scripture, and we will learn today, those things are not separate. We love our Lord through doctrine, through sound teaching. I've heard people say, you know, these different points of doctrine, they, they don't really matter. You know, if we kind of want to do things in a different way, Jesus knows our heart. And at the end of the day, it's really just about your relationship with Jesus. You're right, it is. That's why doctrine matters. That's why we take it seriously. And that's why where Scripture has clearly spoken, we listen. This is incredibly difficult in a time where we have more Christian content out in the world than ever before. Have you ever stopped to think about this? We have Christian everything. I'm sure that there are probably like Christian chili dogs out there. There's Christian bookstores, Christian versions of Netflix, Christian movies, Christian music, Christian t-shirts. There are even Christian mints. They're called testaments. Testaments, get it? Now, we're not going to be doing a, a thorough study today of discernment though that's a worthwhile study. But we will certainly see today how we, can, how we can discern trustworthy teaching from untrustworthy teaching. So this morning, we're going to look at six lessons regarding trustworthy teaching. Number one, before we start, let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to hear directly from you, Lord. Not that I speak for you, but you speak to us in your word. And I pray that you would help me in, in my inability, Lord, and in my fallenness and my humanity and my weakness to be able to convey these great and wonderful truths in a manner that's glorifying to you, faithful to the text, and helpful for your people. I pray that your people would be helped and edified this morning 
and that Christ would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. So the first lesson is, is the boldness of trustworthy te- teaching. Let's look at our text. Just verse 14 is the focus here. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The boldness of trustworthy teaching. Why boldness? Let's remind ourselves of where we are in chapter 7. The, the Feast of Booze is at hand, and it's a great time of joyous celebration for the people of Israel as they come from all over Jer- Jerusalem to celebrate the end of harvest season. There are great multitudes of people in town for the feast, and Jesus' Jesus's brothers are urging him to go to the feast as well. You remember, if you do these things, don't do them in secret. Go into the public square. Go into where all of the religious people are and show them yourself. Reveal yourself to them. But Jesus is not on the same timeline as they are, so he tells them to go on ahead. He's not going at that time because his time had not yet come. We know in hindsight that he's waiting for the Father's perfect timing for him to go to Jerusalem. He didn't want to go with them openly and publicly because the Jewish leaders would have jumped at the first opportunity to arrest him and to kill him. And it was not the right time for his crucifixion. So he waits. But then the time comes and he made his way up to Jerusalem. And our verse 14 here begins at the middle of the feast. So it's not at the very first day of the feast. We don't really know if Jesus waited till the middle of the feast and then went up or Maybe he went sometime. We don't really know. That would just be speculation. But what we do know is that it is now the middle of the feast that Jesus is going into the temple to teach. The feast was seven days long, friends. That's that's a long time to feast. That's a long time to observe a particular kind of festival. So halfway through that seven days... This wasn't just a one-day event. You know, halfway through that week is when Jesus is going up into the temple. It's amazing here. We don't see our Lord hiding out in the shadows. We don't see him standing outside the city gate saying, hey, go tell everybody that I'm going to be teaching out here, and they should come outside and meet me. I don't want to go in there because they're going to try to kill me. He doesn't do anything like that. We don't even... We don't even see him just go about his business and just observe the feast like anybody else would. No, instead, he goes right into the mouth of the lion. The Jews hated Jesus in his teaching. They wanted to kill him. We know that from verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18. We know that from the very beginning of this chapter. They wanted to kill him. And Jesus isn't hiding out. He goes into the temple on their home turf, the place where they ruled and reigned, the place where they received their greatest honor. The temple for the Jews was a symbol of their place of power because they were apostate. And Jesus walks right in and begins to do the very thing that they hate for him to do, teach. He doesn't go in and just start healing people or just go in and just, maybe he did, but what John draws out for us is that he began to teach. This shows you more proof that Jesus was not afraid at the beginning of the chapter. He wasn't scared of the the big, bad, scary Jews. He wasn't hanging back from going with his family and not going publicly because he was scared. No, he he has no fear of man whatsoever. He was on the Father's divine timeline for his life. Here is our Lord, full of courage, 
walking into the temple, finding a place to situate, and then he opens his mouth and begins to teach publicly, out in the open. He's not hiding. The only thing that he is armed with is the sword of truth. What is there to fear after all? He's standing on the truth, with the truth, as the truth. What is there to fear? Now, they might not like to hear it, but he is the Son of God. That is the truth. Though they despise it, they must believe in him to be saved. Though they reject him, he's their only hope. A trustworthy teacher speaks boldly and courageously, for he knows that what he is teaching is the truth. Though this promise was for the disciples in Luke chapter 21, verse 15, it is certainly true of anyone who is armed with truth. Luke 21, 15, I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I love in Acts chapter 6, Stephen, an unlearned man, is sp- uh, preaching and boldly proclaiming the way of God. And we're told in Acts 6, verse 10, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So what did they do? They killed him. Because he was such a nice guy, right? Because he was giving all his money to the poor, right? Because he was building wells in Africa. That's why they killed him, right? They killed him because of for what he was teaching. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Boldness accompanies trustworthy teaching. It is because of trustworthy teaching that people like Martin Luther, as we read about in our book, The Holiness of God, recently, it's because of trustworthy teaching that he was able to stand up there in front of this council at the Diet of Worms. You remember what he said? Here I stand, I can do no other. My conscience is captive to what? Do you remember? The word of God. Was Martin Luther just a particularly brave man? No. He was standing on the word of God. And that is what made him bold. And that's, that is what made him courageous. I love the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Perhaps you've never heard of this before. Ridley and Latimer were burned at the stake for standing on the word of God in, defi- in defiance to Roman Catholicism and all of its false teaching. They were burned at the stake during Queen Mary's reign over England. You know, Bloody Mary. She was known as Bloody Mary for how many people, more so how many Christians, were murdered under her reign. And as they are being burned at the stake, they are being burned at the stake, Latimer shouts to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. Friends, that is boldness. You are on fire, dying. Be of good cheer. They didn't recant. They didn't stop. They could have stopped way before then. But they stood firm. Why? Because they're just these awesome great men of old, and they don't make men like that anymore? Perhaps. 
I think it's more likely that it was trustworthy teaching and that it was a conscience captive to the Word of God and that it was understanding that when you speak and stand on God's Word, that is the highest authority in all of creation. So it is today. You can always rest assured that boldness and courage, they accompany, uh, boldness and courage accompany trustworthy teaching. If you find that the teacher shies away from speaking clearly on unpopular topics or things that go against cultural norms, be very cautious. This doesn't automatically make that person a false teacher, but I would be very cautious of anyone who knows that something's going to be unpopular and says, well, wait a minute. There's a difference between being bold, though, and being bombastic and prideful and arrogant. Boldness isn't seen in shouting and puffing out the chest. Boldness is seen in speaking God's word with clarity and without apology. There are plenty of false teachers who speak loud, who shout, who puff out their chest, And they claim to have no fear of those who might speak against their teaching. But in the final analysis, we find that it is not boldness and courage that you're hearing, but arrogance. In stark contrast, trustworthy teaching demonstrates humility. And that's the second lesson here that we learn is the humility of trustworthy teaching. Verses 15 through 16a. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not my own. As Jesus opens his mouth to teach, bold as a lion, undoubtedly speaking with great clarity and power, the Jews are absolutely astonished. The content of what Jesus is teaching is irrefutable. It is pinpoint accurate. His wisdom is unsearchable. His insight into the law is far superior to anyone else's. So they ask among themselves, how is it that this man knows anything about the law when he's never studied? Now that's not saying that Jesus never picked up a book. That's saying that he never studied in their institutions. He never attended seminary in today's vernacular. There is an undeniable sense of condescension in that question. If we could say it in today's language, it would be, how is it that this guy is the one who knows anything about the law when he's never gone to seminary? How how could you learn anything from a guy like that? He hasn't received formal theological training or been taught the oral tradition or sat at the feet of any of our rabbis. These Jews are elitists. You have to have the right credentials to garner their respect. And Jesus doesn't have any credential that they are willing to consider. As an aside and a reminder, almost 99.9% of the time when you see the word Jews in the Gospel of John, it doesn't mean the Jews in general. He's talking about the religious leaders. So keep that in mind. But what's important for us to to know here is that historians say that rabbis were always sure to quote 
other rabbis in their teaching so that they could appeal to precedents and so that they could put the authority of the rabbinical tradition behind what they are saying. In other words, so that they could say, well, Rabbi so-and-so believed this, and Rabbi so-and-so believed that, and this rabbi and that rabbi, and it shows their own learning, it shows their own authority to speak on a particular matter of the law. Well, here is Jesus, and he's not doing any of that. This shows the pride in their teaching and their teaching tradition that their word carries so much weight that you better quote the rabbis. Who are you? You haven't been trained in our schools. You haven't sat at our feet. Who are you? They are prideful and arrogant and without reason because their teaching is utterly false. Here stands Jesus, clothed in courage and speaking in humility. My teaching is not my own. I mean, if, if anyone could stand up and with great authority and even pride say, you better listen to me, it would be Jesus. But here he says, my teaching is not my own. Jesus didn't come to this earth to do his own will, though he could certainly appeal to his own authority as God in the flesh. Yet he says, my teaching is not my own If you remember from chapter 5, we learned in great detail of the unity of the work and the will of the Father and the Son. In fact, that is what ignited the hatred in the heart of the Jews. Was that when Jesus explained in chapter 5, verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, so the Jews wanted to kill him. Verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Though the Jews hated to hear it, Jesus, as he walked this earth, walked in lockstep with the will of the Father, and he worked exactly as the Father would have him work, because he and the Father are one, one in purpose, one in will, one in word. This was nothing like the Jews. Nothing. In fact, Mark 7, 9 tells us, Jesus speaking to the Jews, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. In other words, you're real good at preferring what you have to say over what God says. Here stands Jesus, God in the flesh, And he humbles himself under the teaching of the Father. But here are the Jews, sinful human beings, setting aside the word of God for their own oral tradition. They elevated the words of man and in so doing, disregarded and supplanted the authority of the scriptures. That is what all untrustworthy teachers do. Every last one of them. Today, we see it in teachers going soft on issues where scriptures clearly speak. It's seen in people saying things like, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. I've watched interviews with a number of pastors who are asked various questions regarding homosexuality and whether or not it's a sin. And they will often say something like, I believe everyone is on their own journey 
And I would just really like to sit down with that person and hear their story. They act as though this is the humble approach. You see, I'm loving and I'm, and I'm patient and I'm humble. That's why I wouldn't want to make any paint with a broad brush about any particular issue. But in reality, this is pride. It's pride that causes you to set aside the scriptures for your own thinking. It is not humility to speak in gray, fuzzy language regarding difficult topics because it's unpopular. It is pride, it is arrogance, it is fearing man more than God. A trustworthy teacher doesn't speak on his own authority. He doesn't appeal to his years of theological training. He doesn't appeal to his so-called word from God. A trustworthy teacher opens the Bible and clearly explains what the Bible is saying. I do not believe Jesus would have ever posted on his Facebook or Twitter, make sure you come to church tomorrow because, boy, do I have a word for you. But that's really popular today. Make sure you come listen to me because I got a word for you. Instead, what does Jesus say? My teaching is not my own. Brothers and sisters, just from my own heart, I pray that this kind of humility would mark my own ministry. I pray that the Lord would work in me to grow me in humility because I'm not above pride and arrogance. I'm just a man as anyone else. Now, if Jesus is saying that his teaching is not his own, if boldness accompanies trustworthy teaching, What is it that makes one bold and what does one teach that demonstrates their humility? Here's our third lesson. The source of trustworthy teaching. We've seen the boldness, we've seen the humility, now the source. Verse 16b, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. While the rabbis are busy quoting each other and appealing to the authority of the oral tradition, Jesus is quoting God. Who wins there? Thus he appeals to the authority of who? The rabbinical tradition? The rabbis that have gone before him? No, he's appealing to the authority of the almighty, one and true God. Jesus was teaching them the very words of God. This is why Jesus was bold and humble at the very same time. It's because the teaching that he was delivering was not of his own invention. That is to say that it was not invented apart from the Father. Jesus didn't come to this earth, think up a bunch of things, and then say, here's the teaching of God. No, his words were one with the Father. Why? Because Jesus is one with the Father. The Son perfectly taught all that the Father would have him teach. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus is looking back on his life in John 17. Listen to what he says in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, for I have given them the many blessings. He doesn't say, for I have given them the many healings, or the power to heal, or the power to prophesy, or the power to speak in tongues, or or this, that, or the other. What does he say? I have given them the words that you have given me. Do you see how much the word of God matters to God? 
Jesus, the Son of God, is praying to the Father. And he is saying, I did what you asked me to do. I gave them your word. The words Jesus spoke were the very words of God. That is why Jesus could say, truly, truly, I say to you. He's not saying, Rabbi so-and-so had to say this. Rabbi so-and-so said this, that. He's saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Why is he able to say that? Because he taught the words of God. Both by virtue of him being God in the flesh and by virtue of him teaching the words given him of the Father. Isn't it amazing that even in his teaching, Jesus does not appeal to his own authority, though? He always appeals to the Father. In chapter 5, we saw that he spoke of his work being the work of the Father and also that his teaching was the teaching of the Father. This is why they hate Jesus. They can't stand what he's saying, but they can't refute it. They can't do anything about it. They hate it so much, but they can't overcome him. They can't win any argument. In the other Gospels, you often see this playing out because his, opponent, his opponents, they'll come to him with a, man, we got a stumper. We got him this time. I know what we can ask him. We can ask him about the resurrection. We can, we can ask him about paying taxes. We can ask him about this, and we're going to stump this guy. Time and time and time again, Jesus easily answers their questions with just unbelievable wisdom. And this is why they hate him, because they can never get him to say an errant word. They hate him because he is speaking against all of their pre precious tradition. And in so doing, he is dismantling all of their power and authority. The night that Jesus is arrested, they take him to the house of Annas to be questioned. I just want you to think about and listen to what it is that they're questioning Jesus about. Turn to chapter 18. We're obviously going to get there, Lord willing, one day. Chapter 18, look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and the many miracles that he was working. Is that what your Bible says? They questioned Jesus about his disciples and how nice he was. How about his teaching? They questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This is the first thing that happens when they're arresting Jesus. They bring him in for questioning. And the very first thing that is on the agenda is his teaching. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I love this. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Man. And you know what their reaction is? They slapped him. They hated what he had to say. They couldn't overcome what he had to say. They couldn't defeat what he had to say. They couldn't win any arguments against him. They hated him. It's all because of his teaching. You know, there, there are people today, I'm making such a big deal about this, 
Because there are people today who say, well, I just follow the teachings of Jesus. Well, who tell me, who wants to kill you? Because they wanted to kill Jesus because of his teaching. But often people say that in a way to say, I just am nice to people. I just try to be kind of moral. I don't judge anybody. I never say anything about anybody's sin. I'm, I'm a social justice warrior. I do this, that, and the other. I just follow the teachings of Jesus. Well, my friend, it was the teachings of Jesus that got him killed. So if you're following the teachings of Jesus, who wants to kill you today? Who is angry with you? Who hates you? How many family members have stopped calling? How many friends don't come around anymore? How many times has your manager sat with you and said, hey, could you chill out? Because if that hasn't happened, I have a hard time believing that you're really, truly following the teachings of Jesus. Because they wanted to kill him. Should we then claim to follow his teaching and, and live just in absolute comfort in this world with no one angry with us? We're, we're at, on good terms with everybody even people who are living in open rebellion and we're close to them? I don't think so. You see, the thing about a trustworthy teacher teaching from the words of God, his teaching here, he com it comes from God. So if you have a problem with the teaching, who is your problem truly with? It's with God. Trustworthy teaching finds its source in the scriptures. Trustworthy teachers teach the scriptures. And this is why here we have the practice of working through books of the Bible. And this is why I don't think about a new series every few weeks about dating and how to think about movies and all of this kind of stuff. It's because we want to work our way methodically through books of the Bible because what you need to hear is not some man waxing eloquent. What you need to hear is the Word of God. You need the words of the living God. You don't need my thoughts on a matter. You need to know what God thinks. In order for you to be called to greater levels of godliness, it's not going to happen by my own personal convictions but by God in his word calling you to greater levels of godliness. You need to be comforted, not by me saying, hey man, everything's going to be all right. You need to be comforted by the words of our loving Father. Pay close attention to any teacher who makes a habit of speaking apart from the word of God. Who maybe reads the Bible at the beginning of the, the message, it's not a sermon anymore, at the beginning of the message, but then goes on storytelling or spends their time sharing more from the heart and the word that they have from God for you. We do have a word from God, and it's right here. We got plenty of it. You'll never want to listen to a teacher who is not rightly dividing the word of God. You don't want to listen to those whose sermons, lessons, and lectures are void of the word of God, but those who are saturated with the word of God that make you have to get your Bible out. You shouldn't be able to listen and hardly hear scripture or hardly ever wonder where that came from. 
It should be clear to you. Why? Because you want to be able to say that you're smarter than everyone and everyone else is a heretic except for you? No, because the cry of your heart is the same as the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 25. Give me life in your word. That brings us to the fourth lesson that we learn here is the recipients of trustworthy teaching. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In this statement, Jesus gives both comfort to those who gladly accept his teaching and also makes an indictment of those who do not receive his teaching. Jesus says to them that if their heart's desire were truly to do what pleases God, then they would be able to tell whether or not this teaching was from God. And guess what the answer would be? This teaching is from God. But you see, the Jews in front of Jesus, they don't truly want to honor God. They want to be honored. They seek the praise of man. Therefore, they do not receive Christ's teaching as coming from God. Thus, this statement is an indictment upon the Jews for the rejection of his teaching. He's saying, the reason why you don't accept my words as from God is because you don't want to do the will of God. It's not in your heart. You have no desire to please God. That's why you don't accept the teaching. But at the same time, what great comfort is given to the listener who hears these words and says, you know, I don't know who this is entirely. This Jesus of Nazareth, I don't, I don't know everything there is to know about him. Some of the stuff he said with the bread, I can't really figure out. But something about what he's saying, I just know it resonates in my soul. And I just, I just know he's, it's true. I just know it. And I can't really explain it. But I know that it's true. Or said in another way, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Brothers and sisters, I want you to take great comfort this morning. If you find in your heart this morning a desire to hear God's word, it is evidence that in your heart there is a desire to do the will of God, to do what pleases him. You might not be at the head of the class. You might not be the most sanctified of the saints or the strongest in the faith. But if there is in your heart a love for the word of God, an affirmation when you hear or read God's word, that it is indeed the words of the living God, then it is evidence that there is in your heart a desire to please God. And how did this desire get there? By the Spirit of God. It's evidence that the Helper who has sent the Father and the Son is leading you into all truth. Let us see then how inextricably connected doing the will of God is with hearing the word of God. As is written in the book of James, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. Take great comfort in that truth this morning. I, I I think about 1 John and how 
it seems like a commentary on the Gospel of John. And if I could go back, I would want to do 1 John after the Gospel of John because you can see, you can almost see John just reminiscing on the life of Christ and what he remembers being taught. They even begin almost the same way. That which was from the beginning, he begins 1 John with. But in chapter 4, he says something about discernment as he's teaching about discernment. Chapter 4, verse 5. They are from the world, speaking of these false teachers. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And get this, and the world listens to them. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who are you listening to? You ever wonder why these false teachers, these soft kind of teachers, do you ever wonder why they get such a following? 1 John chapter 4, verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and that's why the world loves to listen to them. They love to hear it because they are of the world. But if you hear the truth and the truth is in you, you say, I want more of that. I want more of the truth. But if you find no desire for the Word of God, if your Bible collects dust, if even the Bible app on your phone collects dust, if you find yourself checking out when you hear sound teaching, it's boring to you. If you don't find in your heart a desire for God's Word or a stronger inner affirmation that God's Word is truly living and active, my friend, it is evidence that you are much more like the Pharisees and you don't truly know God. If you don't find a love for His Word in your heart this morning, friend, it is evidence that there is no spiritual life in you. So my plea with you today would be to turn to the living God and trust in Christ, to believe upon Him for the first time. There are many today, even this morning, in churches everywhere who gather to hear anything but trustworthy teaching. They don't even seek out trustworthy teaching. They are of the sort that the Scriptures tell us about who have itching ears and seek out teachers who will appeal to their own passions. They want a teacher who will not speak about the idols in their hearts, who will say it's okay to have that idol, who will not call them to repentance, who will not call them to greater levels of godliness. And they do this because their will is not to do the will of God, but their own will. There are, these are the same people who will ironically take, call people who take the Bible seriously Pharisees. And ironically, they are much more like Pharisees in that they disregard the word of God for the teaching of man. A Pharisee is not one who takes the Bible seriously. That was their problem, is that they didn't take the word seriously. They might have known a lot that they could quote, but they didn't apply it. They put the word of God down and elevated the traditions of man. So it's ironic how today, those who love the Bible and try to apply it and take it seriously, they're called Pharisees by Pharisees who are elevating the tradition 
of man. Herein we come to our fifth lesson, the opposite of trustworthy teaching. 18 through the end of the the passage, through 23. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole a man's whole body well? This is the opposite of trustworthy teaching. Just as Jesus displays his humility in saying that his teaching did not come from himself but from the Father, so teachers display their pride and arrogance by teaching of their own authority. Again, this was a trademark of the Jewish leaders at the time as they would appeal to the authority of the oral tradition, of the rabbinical tradition. They wanted to be praised They wanted to be honored. In fact, they loved to be praised and honored. Jesus pronounces that in Luke chapter 11. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. They loved to have their opinion sought out. Rabbi, what is your opinion on this matter? What do you think about this in the law? What do you? And they loved that opportunity because they wanted to show how brilliant they were. Let me tell you what I think. And here's Jesus dismantling all of their teaching, and they hate him. Chapter 5, verse 44 of this gospel. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You seek glory from each other. You seek glory from man. False teachers love glory. They are glory chasers. They want glory and honor and power and money and fame. They want to be sought out for what they have to say. They love to be loved. They love to put on a show. They love the applause they receive. And this is why they will not speak the word of God clearly. Why? It's because people don't want to hear it. And they want to be praised. They want to be honored. So they don't speak clearly. They give the people what they want. This is why you find churches that have the house lights down low and the stage lights are bright. There's a spotlight up here. It's a production. It's a worship experience. This is why you will hear them do very little exposition of Scripture, but a whole lot of talking. They don't stand on the authority of Scripture. They stand on their own authority. My friends, what good does that do you on Judgment Day? Well, so-and-so taught me. Well, so-and-so taught me. They might be the ones that call you a Pharisee and a legalist, but in reality, they are the Pharisee because they stand on their own authority and reject the Word of God for man-made opinions. I want you to notice that this is the same kind of disposition that leads to the murder of Christ. Jesus goes on to issue another indictment of the Jews by appealing to the law of Moses that they loved so much and their constant breaking of the law. Has not Moses given you the law? 
yet none of you keeps the law. How many? Only, only most of you keep the law. Or most of the time you do pretty good, but this one, none of you keeps the law. This is an explicit statement about the condition of their hearts. A moment ago he said that if anyone's will is to do the will of God, then they will recognize that this teaching is from God. Now he's showing that they absolutely do not have any desire to do the will of God because they have the will of God and they don't do it. None of you do the will of God. You don't follow the law. Then to demonstrate this truth, he he shows them how they would elevate circumcision over the Sabbath. It was a practice that every male that was born to a family had to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day, they would say, well, what do we do, the Sabbath or circumcision? And eventually the rabbi said, well, circumcision. So they would circumcise on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is making the point, you're cutting a person on the Sabbath. I'm making a whole man's whole body well on the Sabbath day. Why are you mad at me about that? He's made a whole man's a man's whole body well. Who's he talking about? The invalid from chapter 5. He's calling back to that because that was the moment that their hatred was sparked against Jesus. He's saying since that day you have hated me. You want to kill me. That's why he's saying that. That's why he's bringing that up. You want to kill me. The false teachers they do not love Christ. They are much more like Pharisees who reject the clear teaching of Scripture in favor of the teaching of man. False teachers seek their own glory so that they so they appeal to the authority of their own visions, their own supposed words from the Lord, their own minds. Sixth and lastly, the trademark of trustworthy teaching. This is from verse 18b, the second part. He says, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus, who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise, walked this earth in unmatched humility. He lived his entire life unto the glory of God. Never for a moment did he do anything that would even resemble the, the heart, to, the desire to bring his own self glory He lived unto the Father. Thus, his teaching was not his own, but it was the teaching of the Father. While no teacher outside of Christ will perfectly model these six lessons that we've learned today, we should certainly see this trademark of trustworthy teaching, and that is an all-pervasive desire to glorify God. Not seeking your own glory. It is truly only the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God that can be glorifying to God. It is not glorifying to him to teach of one's own authority or opinion. A trustworthy teacher will gladly endure hardships and insults as he proclaims God's word because he does not live for his own glory, but the glory of God. Now again, no teacher outside of Christ perfectly models these six lessons. But we can definitely learn from these six lessons, how to be trustworthy teachers and how to identify trustworthy teaching. It's marked by boldness. It's accompanied by humility. It is sourced from the word of God. It is well received by true believers. 
and it is unto the glory of God. May this kind of teaching be the hallmark of Flatland Bible Church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I confess my own shortcomings and my own failings in being human and in battling some of these things that we address today. And I pray that as the pastor of this church, that you would make these things more real in my life, and that you would help these people to be able to recognize these six different lessons that we would be able to apply these things in our life, that we would truly seek out sound biblical teaching because that's how we come to know you and love you. And we pray this through the name of Jesus. Amen.